All right. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Um, before I get into today, uh, getting the chance to prepare a sermon gives me a little bit of a glimpse into what the life of Z and Max is like in the every week life of the church, and just a small glimpse in that sermon preparation is such a small aspect of it, and ministering to people, discipling people, meeting in small groups, meeting in men's group is so much of what they do. Um, so as a church, we are so blessed to have these two guys um, leading us, guiding us, and people that we have to shepherd our church. And so getting to prepare a sermon um, just gives a little bit of a glimpse into what their life is like week to week. And they both have full-time jobs that um, they pursue wholeheartedly as well. And so we are truly gifted to have Z and Max as leadership at Rua. Um, and I would just want to take this time to remind us just of how grateful we should be for Z and Max. As we get into this last bit of chapter one today, I think it would be just to take a glimpse back at what we've worked through over the last two plus months in this first chapter of Luke, um, knowing that at the beginning uh, we saw that Luke was writing an orderly account to Theophilus so that he may have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. We see that in Luke 1, verse 4. Then we see how God had broken the 400-year silence from the last time the Israelites heard a direct word from God, specifically the prophecy seen in the book of Malachi. We spent a few weeks in verses 5 through 25 covering the prophecy reactions and the narrative birth of John the Baptist being foretold. Seeing how specifically the people were being prepared and how a faithless people belonged to a faithful God. Following the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth is the foretelling of Jesus' birth and how Mary responds to the news, which if you recount was vastly different than how Zachariah responded to the news um, that his wife would conceive and have a child. Then we have the narrative of how Mary visits Elizabeth. And we see that the assurance of the Holy Spirit's presence was among Mary, Elizabeth, and their wombs. Followed that was the Magnificat, Mary's song of praise, in which we are able to see how we can rightly worship God corporately as well as personally. And then we had the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist, which isn't only significant to the birth of the forerunner for Christ, but it's also significant showing the spiritual growth in Zechariah over these nine months of silence and deafness that he had to ponder, confess, and turn away from his disbelief in the power in God Almighty. We saw his drastic change from the words, how shall I know this, to his name is John. The affirmation statement of his name is John that he inscribed upon the writing tablet was a very proof of faith that was needed to lift the silence of the curse of muteness from his lips. And when the Lord opened his mouth, Zechariah couldn't help but praise the Lord after these nine months of silence, which leads us right into this text for this evening, which is the Benedictus, the Latin word in the Latin Vulgate, or Zechariah's song of praise. Um, this is the fourth time in the last nine months that the Lord has spoken after this 400-year silence. Picture being an Israelite in this time, particularly Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, or Joseph. There's been 400 years of utter silence from the Lord. And then in those 400 years, the Israelites were conquered by the Greeks at the hand of Alexander the Great. Um, There's a Maccabean revolt that brought independence to the Jews. And then in the hands of Rome, Israel was conquered once again. So in these 400 years, a lot has happened. A lot that would result in religious and political turmoil, doubt in the promises of God, and doubt in his faithfulness. 
Then, out of what seems to be nowhere, God, Yahweh, makes his presence abundantly known, especially to these two families, not by speaking once or twice or three times, but four times over the course of nine months, he reveals himself to these two families. God speaks through the angel twice, through Elizabeth and her response, and now through Zechariah and his response of praise. There are three sections in this section of Scripture, three subsections um, that we can find outlined. Verses 67 through 71, verses 72 through 75, and verses 76 through 80. And these three groupings are grouped by the different covenants that Zechariah is referring to. The first, 67 through 71, pertains to the Davidic covenant. Then 72 through 75 is the Abrahamic covenant. And the final one, 67 through 80, pertain directly to the new covenant. And something to note is verse 64. And it says, And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. This is Zechariah's immediate response to his tongue being loosed. Keep in mind that his wife was barren into old age. They have prayed for so long to have a child, and now the Lord finally provides them with one. And they could have celebrated the birth of the child, talked nonstop about this great miracle that the birth is, but that is not the response. In the 12 verses that Zechariah has quoted here, only two of them pertain to his infant son, and they describe what his son will do in serving his role, preparing for the coming Messiah. So Zechariah is deeply rooted in the Old Testament in this hymn of praise, quoting scripture back to God as acknowledgement of his faithfulness to his people. This tribute of praise is specifically for the salvation of sinners, and therefore there is no talk of judgment in this praise. This talks about how this salvation has brought forth from these covenants into this Messiah that we see here that is being prophesied about. Luke includes this in his gospel account because it inseparably links Christianity to the Old Testament salvation covenants. And Zechariah takes this time not to talk about to recognize his kid, but another kid who is coming and who will be even greater than his own, who his own son won't be worthy enough to untie the straps of the sandals on the kid who's coming after him, the coming Messiah, Jesus. All of the events we have seen so far in this first chapter have led up to this hymn of praise, which I think is perfect timing, setting up what we'll see in the following chapter, the birth of the Savior. In many of your Bibles, the heading at the top probably reads Zechariah's prophecy. If you have an NIV, it probably says Zechariah's song. Both headings are accurate, as there is a praise and there is prophecy in this section. Throughout the course of this, I will refer to this as a song or a hymn or praise, as many of the commentators refer to this as a hymn or praise um, deriving from verse 68, which is the blessed be the Lord God, is the benedictus. It's this praise of the God Almighty. So now as we get into the text, we see how this praise is set up by, by informing us in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he prophesied. This is not the first we see this language in the first chapter of Luke. If you recall a few weeks ago when Tim preached, on the passage when Mary visits Elizabeth, we see that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a similar way to Zechariah, Elizabeth's first response is a praise. We see these texts knowing we are blood-bought children of God and knowing we are given this Holy Spirit and that should incite us to praise all the time. Our response to the joys, the trials, the thrills, the difficulties should all be praise. It was for Zechariah and Elizabeth and it's the same Holy Spirit that was living and active then, that is still living and active in all of us. 
and we should give praise to the Lord for that. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This benedictus, blessed be, blessed be the Lord God, was a common way to introduce praise in the Old Testament. So already in this first line, Zechariah is inciting text from the Old Testament, linking the two together. And then the following, for he has visited and redeemed his people, he uses this past tense because the Messiah has already been conceived. Christ is already in the womb before he is ever born, lives a perfect life, dies and resurrects. Zechariah is giving praise to God for the gracious act of visiting his people and redeeming him. And the Messiah hasn't even done anything yet. Zechariah is that confident in the work of the Lord that he knows the Lord has been faithful to his promise just from the conception of Christ. Knowing that the Messiah is coming soon, Zechariah is praising God for an expectation of total deliverance for God's people. Continuing on in verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In Psalm 18, David writes, starting in verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Zechariah affirms that not only was God the horn of salvation for David, but also Christ, who comes in the line of David, is a horn of salvation for all. There's some disagreement over which horn is meant in this sentence. Something is the horn of the trumpet sounding, and something is the horn of a great animal. Most commentators agree that this horn is a horn of strength, with power to conquer and kill like that of a great horned beast, one that would lower his horns, driving out his enemies, delivering his people. Zechariah is speaking that over Christ, who is still in the womb, affirming the Old Testament, affirming what David says, that the horn of salvation is coming, and Zechariah is speaking that over Christ, who still has yet to be born. God has raised up this horn of salvation when the hope of salvation to all had seemed to have perished. Remember, there was a 400-year gap from the last time the Israelites had heard from the Lord. The hope of salvation had seemed to have perished, and now the Lord remaining faithful to his promises, has raised up the horn of salvation through Christ. Continuing on in verse 70 and 71, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Prophets of old directly refers to the Abrahamic oath seen in Genesis 12 and the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel 7, which is the prophecy and description of the Lord's covenant with David, specifically the house of David, which during David's rule he had a mission to build a temple for God, but was unable to accomplish the task, and his son Solomon ended up being the one to build the temple, to build this house of God. And God takes it upon himself to say, No, David, you will not build a house for me. Instead, I will build a house for you that will be forever. So starting halfway through verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance to all these words, in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Zechariah is declaring the fulfillment of this prophecy through the Messiah that is coming in the line of David. But how? How is this covenant and prophecy of old being fulfilled through Christ? Well, there are five provisions to the Davidic covenant. Number one, David is to have a child yet to be born who shall succeed him and establish his kingdom. Number two, this son shall build the temple instead of David. Number three, the throne of his kingdom shall be established forever. Number four, the throne will not be taken away from him, even though his sins justify chastisement. And number five, David's house, throne, and kingdom shall be established forever. Now, if we look back earlier in Luke 1, we see when the angel spoke to Mary that Christ will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The components of the Davidic covenant are all fulfilled through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, who comes in the line of David and will sit on the throne forever, and whose kingdom will have no end. Verse 72 says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And the result of messianic salvation is that mercy is displayed and covenant is remembered. Messianic salvation is a direct result of God remembering his holy covenant. And this concept of remembering is not merely a cognitive concept of remembering, but it refers to God bringing his promise into operation through the life of Christ. Through the lens of the Jews in this time, there might have been some appearance of forgetfulness from God during this 400-year period of silence. So the remembering of his holy covenant is proving God's faithfulness to his promises. That we would be saved from our enemies is Zechariah's knowledge that if his son, the forerunner, had just been born, salvation through the Messiah would follow shortly thereafter. Continuing on in verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. The mention of Abraham recalls that God, in his immutability, is faithful to his original commitments. The oath made in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that was later confirmed in the covenant in Genesis 15, says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Zechariah is reminding the people both of the Davidic and Abrahamic promises that God makes to show that the Lord truly is faithful to what he said he would do. We already examined the Davidic covenant, and so why is this Abrahamic covenant significant for Zechariah to reference as well? The Abrahamic covenant has many parts, some that were fulfilled in the Old Testament and some that are waiting to be fulfilled in Christ. This covenant includes seven provisions, the first one being the promise of a great nation through Abraham. Number two, personal blessing on Abraham. Three, the name of Abraham shall be great. Number four, Abraham is to be a blessing to others. Number five, blessing will rest on those blessing Abraham. Number six, a curse will rest on those who curse Abraham. And number seven, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. 
So why does it matter for Zechariah to reference this Abrahamic covenant? It's important because through Abraham, all the families of the earth have been blessed in the redemption provided by Christ. In the redemption that is provided through this prophecy that the Messiah is coming and knowing that the coming redemption is provided only through Christ. And that is how these covenants are fulfilled. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Serve him without fear of who? Fear of our enemies, fear of our sin, the enemy, and death. In the Old Testament, there was a veil covering the Holy of Holies because God could not see man's wrong without striking him dead. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. Therefore, the veil made a barrier between sinful man and a holy God and put fear into the Israelites because of God's eyes being too pure to look on this evil. That if their sin was seen, it warranted death. So from the time sin entered the world, there has been a war between God's people and God and sin. And this barrier between God and man was relieved when Christ came and united God and man together, tearing the veil at the crucifixion of Christ. And it turned a Jewish religion into a Christian relationship. In Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So, through this new covenant, we need not fear sin, Satan, or death, because we can walk freely in the gift of justification by the blood of Jesus. As the old hymn that we so often sing now goes, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And these verses, 74 and 75, are a restatement of the messianic salvation that we see in verse 71. The salvation that delivers God's people so they may serve him. Not only serve him, but doing so without fear. This without fear indicates that we must serve God with the proper composure of our minds. In fact, we cannot serve God in a proper manner if we don't have the right composure of our minds. Knowing that we need not fear like the Israelites once needed to when approaching the throne, we can now do so with confidence. So now we see this process of what Messianic salvation looks like for believers. We are delivered from our enemies, from our sin, into the hands of the Father. In response, we serve the Lord in proper alignment of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to Him. And all this service to the Lord, when done properly, is honoring and glorifying to the Lord, in which He is pleased. And God accomplishes all this, in particular our individual salvation, so that His name may be exalted through our service, and that He may be glorified in our salvation. Messianic salvation isn't just for God's people, it's ultimately for God, and for His name to be glorified through the gracious mercy that he has shown his people. John Piper recently released a book called Providence, and in that book he begins with the fundamental breakdown of what providence of God is. He writes that providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. Not only that our God is a powerful sovereign, but everything on earth for all time has been ordained by God on purpose through his power. Messianic salvation is a clear indication of not only the sovereign, all-reigning power of God, but also his providence in our salvation. God didn't ordain a means of salvation that grants us access into heaven and we get to be happy and celebrate and rejoice that we aren't going to hell. He didn't ordain a means of salvation that required us to work 
day after day to become more righteous, to have a shot to get into heaven. He also didn't ordain a means of salvation that was unattainable, that no man would be able to reach heaven and eternal glory, even though if God wanted to ex- execute the greatness of his justice, he would be completely just for that punishment. God didn't ordain any of that. What has been ordained is that a Messiah will come in the line of David to atone for the sins of all God's people, deliver his people from their enemies into the hands of a loving, compassionate Father. And once he has delivered his people, they return in serving him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all their days, that in this service to the Lord he may be exalted, glorified, honored, esteemed, celebrated, and praised by his people. God has done all this that he may be exalted. Now in human thinking, to picture this great orchestrated plan that God creates so that his name may may be great seems a bit self-righteous. And if it were any mere human that that we were serving that created this plan, that assumption would be right. However, this is the God of the universe. This is the God who has raised up a horn of salvation that has delivered us from the hand of our enemies that eventually resurrected his son and promises that he will return again in glory. The exaltation of this God is right and just. This God isn't only worthy of our praise, but is beneficial to us, his people, to exalt his name. This cycle of deliverance, salvation, service, exaltation is the order in which God has created that is ultimately for his name's sake. Deliverance, salvation, service, and exaltation is not merely for us, but also for God's name to be made great. Which in return is not only honoring to God, but it is beneficial to us, his people. We are created as image bearers, and when corrupted by our original sin, we are unable to fully love and worship God through our depravity. But through the deliverance offered by the Messiah, we are given strength by the Holy Spirit to be able to serve and worship God, which is exactly what we were created for as image bearers. So not only is this entire providential plan of God good and glorifying just for him, it is also accomplishing in us what we are intended for. And it is all for the sake of the great name of God. What a beautiful picture. God's people who have been corrupted, ran astray, being saved through the work of his son, returning to the Lord and serving him without fear. Without fear of the world, without fear of the enemy, without fear of anything. That we may serve God in holiness and righteousness for all our days. Continuing on, verses 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. This is the text of John the Baptist describing his role as the forerunner for the Messiah. It was prophesied in Malachi 3.1, giving knowledge that salvation is coming and his people must repent. And before Israel could realize the blessings of their covenants, they first needed to face the reality of their sins, repent, and seek the forgiveness that is only offered through the new covenant. The Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants did not have the power to change the heart. God provided the new covenant that we first hear of in Jeremiah. And if you will all turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, we see the first prophecy of the promised new covenant that is to come, that is is to be fulfilled through the life of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 31, and we will begin in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer will each one say, teach his neighbor and each, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant provides deliverance from the power, the penalty, and ultimately, in glory, deliverance from the presence of sin. And it provides a new heart, the power to obey God, fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, and the forgiveness of sin. Zechariah's assurance in these verses for John's role in being the forerunner for Christ is also the assurance that God has delivered the Messiah into Mary's womb and that he is coming. And he will do what the Old Testament said he will do. Similarly to his assurance of his name is John, seen in verse 43 that we saw last week, we now not only see his name confirming the promises of God that were, but we see in his role the promises of God that are to come. Now imagine being in Zachariah's shoes. He's finally able to speak. He finally has a son after so many childless years of marriage. He could have celebrated his wife in delivering a baby safely in old age. There could have been a number of things he could have wanted to talk about right away. He had nine months of silence. There could have been some arguments or conversations he finally wanted to have a say in, points he wanted to make, or things he wanted to talk about with Elizabeth, or to check in on how his elderly wife is doing, who just delivered a baby. But no, in the 12 verses he speaks, only two pertain to his son, and those describe the role that John will serve for the coming Messiah. And the rest is just a praise, exalting God for how faithful he has been. Zechariah knows what it looks like to worship God with proper composure of mind. Right worship of God, as we learned in the Magnificat, is theocentric. God-focused, God-exalting, and God-glorifying worship. Verse 78 because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Tender mercy. God's mercy is this compassionate, tender love that is poured out for his people through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. In Old Testament Hebrew, one of the words that is used in describing the love of God is his hesed love. The hesed love is described in so many ways in so many different translations of the Bible. Described as compassionate, gracious, steadfast, loyal, and the word is practically indescribable because there's so many different ways to explain the kind of love that is offered through the Hesed love of God. This is the great, tender mercy of our God showing his people this messianic picture of the rising sun or the coming light that is coming from on high. Coming from God's great sovereign hand, coming from the sovereign that rules over all, coming to fulfill the prophecy seen in Isaiah 11.1, the Davidic Messiah is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Coming to fulfill the, pro the prophecy seen in Numbers 24:17, the Tsar of Jacob, who is a scepter of Israel. Christ is here, Zechariah says. Salvation is coming. Continuing on in verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. This verse presents us with two actions or purposes that this rising sun will accomplish by his rising. He is rising to shine, and he is rising to guide. This is the role and the purpose as to why the sunrise shall visit the people from on high. That God visits his people to shine a light, Christ, and to guide the feet of his people into a new way of peace. 
And what is this new way of peace? And when can, a man, can, when can man achieve this peace? What is this peace that this verse is referring to? Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Similarly, in John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So constantly in Scripture, we see this peace that is being described. And it is the presence of mind, knowing that we have been offered this amazing gift of grace that is salvation, offered through the blood of the perfect Messiah, the spotless Lamb that died in our place, knowing in full confidence that we are fully able to worship and serve God, despite any turmoil or trouble, despite any sin that separates us from our holy God. This peace that the early Christian martyrs had, that had them rejoicing while they were burning at the stake. This peace that Paul writes with when he's locked up in prison. This peace that surpasses all understanding, because without the Spirit, we truly can't understand it. Right before John 14, 27, Jesus says in verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. We are only able to attain this peace and to recognize this peace through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this peace must be similar to the peace that Zechariah was granted through this trial of nine months of being mute, nine months in silence, unable to talk, unable to hear. And this season of waiting conjured up this peace in Zechariah that once he was able to talk, his mouth overflowed with joy for the Lord, praising him for all that he has done, is doing, and will do. And how hard is that for us to wait in silence with peace? Something as simple as our meditation at the beginning of service. Is it easy to sit there in silence with peace, just meditating on an attribute of God? Or do you get anxious, restless, and just waiting for the meditation to be over so that someone can come and talk again? Think of all the noise in your life, getting in the car, turning on music, turning on a podcast, calling someone, going to the grocery store or a restaurant or the gym. There's always noise. There's always background music. There's always something to occupy the silence. And how often do we sit in silence before the Lord just waiting on him? My hypothesis is that if we were to sit silently waiting on the Lord, we would see how many blessings we receive from the Lord daily. But we often don't see or notice it because we fill our lives with so much noise that we don't allow ourselves to see the Lord at work. It is so easy to pass over the blessings of the Lord because we aren't even looking for them. Waiting on the Lord prepares your heart to anticipate blessing. We see a prime example through the life of Zechariah over the last nine months where he had to wait silently. And in that time, we, as we have already seen, there was dramatic heart change. He went from doubting the words of an angel, not just some random person that walked up to him and told him something, an actual angel that appeared in the temple where only he should have been, and he doubts the words that were spoken to him. Now in these nine months, Zechariah has formed this bold confidence in the role that his son will play in the promises of God remained faithful to, and in the salvation that is to come through the Messiah. And remember, Zechariah still doesn't have a perspective of the cross, and this is how he responds. He responds in faith. So I encourage you, if silent meditative prayer isn't incorporated into your daily prayer life, I think this text informs us that silence with God, waiting on Him, looking for His hand at work, 
will soon give us a perspective and the eyes to see the Lord's blessings in our lives. Waiting is faith. Waiting is contentment in where you are at, knowing that you serve a God that was, that is, and that always will be faithful to his promises. And the beautiful thing is we are able to wait well because we know we are justified. We have the perspective of the cross to look at when approaching waiting on the Lord. Contentment and waiting, contentment is waiting on the Lord, who provides us with peace through the Holy Spirit. Verse 80 reads, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the last information we have of John the Baptist until we see the beginning of his ministry in Luke 3. But we know that John, like many other significant figures in Scripture, spent a lot of his formative time in the wilderness. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and others spent time alone with God in the wilderness. This formative time for the future ministry of John the Baptist forms him in a season when he's able to be with God in his creation. And there's a level of beauty, awe, and majesty when in the wilderness, getting to experience God's creation, especially when seeking him out in that time. A time and a place of peace, solitude, and restfulness while the Lord is working on the heart of his creature. Because that is merely what we are, creatures who have been created by the good creator, that when we empty ourselves and seek the Lord to be filled by his word, by his spirit, we are better able to accomplish our mission on this earth, which is to make his name great. God promises that Jesus will come again in glory. And now we find ourselves waiting on the Lord to be faithful to his promises. And who are we to doubt the Lord? Looking at the Lord's faithfulness that we see only in the first chapter of Luke. He has been so incredibly faithful to so many of his covenants. And we are so prone to doubt that he is at work. We are prone to doubt, question, and challenge the Lord, his faithfulness, and his timing. Zechariah writes to this praise without a perspective of the cross. And he, as well as the Israelites, are waiting on the Lord to finish the work that began in the Old Testament. Now for us to be unfaithful, doubting the ability of God to keep his promises when the work has already been done. We have Zechariah, or we have what Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, and Elizabeth didn't have. We have the perspective of the cross to worship God through, to serve God through, to trust God through. And we can trust that the work has been done. Now, it's our job to serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness all our days. That's it. God's own son, our Messiah, was murdered on a cross. The Lamb of God was slain for us. And what are we to do in response? Serve. That's our command from this text. Through messianic salvation, God could have ordained any number of things to do to earn the grace of salvation, but he doesn't. He gives it as a free gift of grace and asks his people to serve him in faith in response. Serve him in holiness and righteousness for all our days. So what does that look like? A few weeks ago during small group time, we talked through the relationship between holiness and righteousness. I think it's a topic worth revisiting. Being holy is being set apart unto God, being set apart from the world, its desires, its pleasures, its passions, its power, and instead looking more like Christ, humble, lowly, gentle, kind, caring, loving, courageous, strong, servant-hearted, looking less like a person who is driven by the things of the world like money, sex, and power, and instead being more driven by grace, compassion, and glory. This is what holiness in your life looks like, being driven by grace, compassion, and glory, motivated by the cross and by Christ. 
Righteousness, by the dictionary definition, is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. In terms of Christian righteousness, it's based on the morals and standards given in Scripture. To self-assess, does your life look like that of Christ, the perfect picture of righteousness, in which, as we all can attest to, none of our lives look like Christ. But the more we are shaped through salvation, or not salvation, sanctification, we are made to look more like Christ, made to be more righteous. When God issues laws like the Ten Commandments, are we able to uphold the values that are given through those commands? Are we able to look like a Christ-following figure when we look at the Ten Commandments? Are we able to obey these in a way that is worshipful to God? Are the things that Christ values things that you value? There are many different lenses to judge your Christian righteousness from in Scripture. However, we know that in all these aspirations, to be holy and to be righteous we will continually come up short on this side of eternal glory. We are prone to wander. We are prone to sin. We are prone to hate the things of God. But through the work of the Spirit and the sanctification in our Christian lives, we can become more like Christ, more holy, more righteous, until final glorification when we are able to sit blameless under the judgment seat of God, having Christ's own righteousness imputed to us. This sanctification process is what our feet being guided into the way of peace is. What we see in verse 79, that as we grow in holiness and righteousness, we can stand before the throne of God with peace, knowing we have been justified by Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Knowing that it is not our own righteousness or lack thereof that God sees, but the righteousness of his own Son that he sees. As Hebrews 9.24 tells us, For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. John the Baptist prepares the way for the coming Messiah, preaching repentance and forgiveness, informing people about the salvation that is offered through the coming Messiah, the Savior from the house of David, the one who completes, fulfills the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants, and then shakes the hand of God the Father in the new covenant so man doesn't have to. As we know, man has so consistently been unfaithful to his end of the covenant for all time, God assures us that we need not worry and that, that we can actually have peace because we have been justified by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That we can be guided to the way of peace. That we can patiently wait without worry because the work has already been done. There's nothing on our end for us to do besides respond in faithful service to God. He has delivered us from our enemies, saved us from his own just wrath, cleansed us from our sins, all with the blood of Jesus. In closing, as we look back over this praise from Zechariah, looking back over the nine months and what they have been like, then looking forward to the rest of the book of Luke, seeing that the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are all still to come, what could be the reason for Luke including this praise of Zechariah at the end of this first chapter? I encourage you to examine it through the eyes of the early Christians, that even in the midst of economic, political, and spiritual turmoil, that we can trust God will be faithful to his promises. And that in trusting him, we can also be confident in trusting in the justification that has been made available to us, that we may worship God without fear of our sin, that we may serve God in holiness and righteousness, and as the veil was torn, we can commune with God through the Holy Spirit as he guides us in the way of peace that Christ has made available to us. And as the early Christians had just experienced the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can rest assured that God, who has always been faithful to his promises, will continue to remain faithful. He doesn't know anything else. It's his nature to remain faithful. In his immutability, he is unable to lie. 
he is unable to break his promises. So we can approach the throne with a humble confidence in pursuit of holiness and righteousness through a sanctifying relationship with the Lord our God, who has promised that he will come again in glory. And we can cling to that with a patient expectation, waiting, longing for the day to see Christ, our great deliverer, the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we seek to respond in praise, knowing that you have given us your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was given to Zechariah and given um, to Elizabeth, Lord. Um, and we seek to praise you and worship you, Lord. And we seek to serve you in holiness and righteousness for all our days. But we know we are only able to do so by the work of your Spirit and by the work of uh, sanctification, Lord. So guide us into the way of peace today. Guide us into the way of peace this week. Um, make us more like you, Lord. Your creatures, your image bearers who have fallen so far away from your glory, Lord. Restore us, um, sanctify us, Lord. Make us more holy, make us more righteous. Um, strengthen us to serve you and to live our lives as an act of worship to you today. It's all in your name we pray. Amen.